here at Calvary Chapel, we teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. We will be picking back up uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we will be finishing this letter, this epistle, yes, praise the Lord, uh, verses 12 through 28, so we'll be taking the last section of this, uh, of this scripture. If you're at home, you obviously have time to grab that. We'll never know you're standing up and walking amongst the, at home, so make sure you have Bibles in hand. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read through these verses, and then we're going to take uh, much time to go through each of the verses, each of the verses, so that you understand in context and how that would apply to your life today. So again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I'm going to be picking back up here in verse 12, and you can just follow along as I read. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you. And are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, test all things, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil." Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Amen meaning let it be so. Let it be. And so as we see and take a look at the scriptures here today, if you're sitting here or if you're listening uh, to my voice uh, and you have without a doubt in your mind that you are a born-again Christian, you're born again, a believer in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you, you just love Jesus, you have a personal relationship with Jesus, and you're a child of God, you're a Christian. If you're in those things that are coming in your mind, then you are sitting on a foundation that is so solid that whatever circumstance or situation in your life that comes, and the world is imploding, whatever it may be, your little world may be imploding today. But if you have that assurity in your mind, without a doubt, you're a Christian, then praise God. You should be praising God for that. But then the next question you should be asking, now what? <laughs> I'm a Christian and I have that foundation, but how do I live this Christian church life that I have now? This life in, with Christ. 
And how do I live this Christian life? How do I walk as a Christian in a certain way? And we've been looking at this epistle and we've been seeing how we are to walk as a Christian through this. If you remember and you've been joining with us, we saw that we should and we should walk according to God's way, not the world's way. But walk according to God's way, which brings about a life that pleases God. That's the first thing that you as a Christian should be doing, is your walk should please God. And everything and anything you say or do. The second thing we learned in the epistle is not only pleasing God, but we are to bring comfort to others in this life. God wants to use you, not just for yourself, it's not just about you, but to use you in the life of another person but to bring comfort. And the third one we saw is it bountiful in edifying one another, building up others, as we learned three weeks ago, the last time I was here, encouraging others in the light of the day of the Lord. <clears throat> and we realize and understand as we read the scripture that the day of the Lord is not a, uh, a point in time, but it is a period of time that the scripture talks about. It's a time of trial and tribulation, death and destruction when God pours out his wrath on a God-rejecting world. And this will begin at the time when the church is caught up or we refer to as the raptured up of the church. That is when the day of the Lord begins. And if you're a believer, you don't have to worry about that. You're going to be with the Lord. You and I are going to be up there in, in, in the arms of Jesus. And the, those who rejected and rejected Christ and didn't want anything to do with them on a personal relationship with him as their Savior, they will be experiencing the day of the Lord. This is why we need to edify, to build up others in, in their faith, knowing that they won't be left behind to experience the day of the Lord. Now we pick back up where we left off, and we see here in the reading here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12, remember the whole theme of this epistle, this book, is all about the coming back of Jesus Christ for the church. That's what the whole theme is for this letter. And now today as we take a look, we're going to see the fourth thing that we need to think about as we're walking in with Christ. We're to please God. We're to comfort others. We're to edify, build up others in the faith. But we also see here today that we must walk, our walk must be blameless as we walk this Christian life. And we saw that not only in chapter 2, verse 10, but we will see it today in chapter 5, verse 23. But what is blameless? Blameless does not mean that we are to be perfect, because we are not perfect. Many times people say, well, you're a Christian. Why are you, not, why are you making mistakes? You shouldn't be making mistakes. You're right. I don't desire to make those mistakes. I don't desire to fall into sin or temptations and those things. Prior to coming to Christ, before I was born again, I had no problems doing those things. But once you come to Christ, then you say, I don't want to do those things. And we take daily steps every day to be able to not only please God in everything we say and do, but we want to be blameless in this life that we walk here. It means that blameless means that when, we, when there is an accusation made against us, it will be what? Baseless in what they're saying. 
If you're walking blameless, those who will still accuse you or come against you or feel like you're doing something against them, those kind of things, it will be baseless. It's something that you need to live a life that you live. No evidence is going to be there to come against you to, be, to, to, to make you blameful of the things that are going on. So we are to walk a life that is blameless. We will see there's going to be three areas that Paul is going to talk about that we must be blameless in our walk as a Christian. And he's going to outline those three areas of our life that need to be blameless. First, we see here in verses 12 and 13, we must be blameless toward leaders of the church or the pastoral staff of a church. And we'll see this here as he says, we urge you, Paul is urging them, the believers there, the brethren, he says it many, many times throughout this epistle, the brethren, the believers, to recognize those who labor among you. So the very first thing he, we see here is that you need to recognize the pastoral staff or the spiritual leaders or servant leaders that are appointed over you in that church that God has brought you to. And we see that Christians are to recognize, or another word is to accept these leaders or to appreciate or to be thankful for them in what they do for you or for us in regards to spiritually watching over us as their leaders. So pastors and leaders are supposed to watch over you, that you're part of that church, to watch your spiritual walk and to get to know you and to understand you. It's like a shepherd watching the flock, the sheep, and making sure there's, there's safety and, and warnings. And say, like, no, 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 let's get that sheep back over here. They're getting too close. There's wolves over there. No, no, it's not, it's, there's no water. There's no feeding here. And this one's moving to another pastor to make sure they have good feeding <clears throat> for them to be healthy sheep. Those kinds of things, that is what the uh, leadership of a church does. Now, keep this in mind. Without leadership, a family falls apart. In a family, if you do not have spiritual leadership, your family will fall apart. It's only a matter of time. The father is the head of the home. The mother stands alongside with him in love and cooperation. And the children are to obey their parents. This is the order that God has put in place for the family. This order that God has laid down for us in a family setting, if we choose to upset that, that, that roles and responsibilities in that order, then what happens is you'll, come, you'll bring about very serious trouble and conflict within that family. If you don't, if that, that husband is not a spiritual leader, and if they don't have a wife that's alongside him, coming alongside in love and cooperation with him in his headship of that leadership position, and the children are not obedient to the parents, there's trouble in that household. But in the church family, it's the same thing. The church family, as we take a look at this, God has ordained leadership for the local church. It is true that we are all one in Christ Jesus, Galatians 3, uh, 3.28, so no one's more important than the other. It's just a role that God has given a calling on someone's life to be the spiritual leader over the church family of that local church. But it's also true that the head of the church is Jesus Christ and not the pastor. 
And so the church has been given gifts to people because Jesus, and by the Spirit of God, has given gifts, spiritual gifts, to the people to then take those people and plant them in local churches to be able to use those spiritual gifts for the benefit of the body of Christ. God's doing all this work. You know that, right? It's not the pastors doing the work. It's not you that thinks you're doing all the work. It's not some committees that are doing the work. It's not some church organization that does the work. It is Christ who's ahead of the church who's doing the work in your life and bringing you and guiding your life to a specific local church to work within the body of those gifts to help the body. And it's God doing all that work. And you and I must always remember that because as he gives these people these gifts and then plants them in these churches to exercise according to his will, not according to your will, you've been given a spiritual gift, you don't get to do whatever you want to do with that gift. You use that gift according to how God's will is for you to use that gift. We see that in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. But just as the flock needs a shepherd, as we see in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1-5, through 5, so the family needs a spiritual leader as well. And that's how it is. That's how it is. God lays this out. So when you understand this, then you understand when Paul is saying here is that you as to walk blameless, you must understand your responsibilities within that setting. And those responsibilities are lined out here and toward the spiritual leaders. You are to recognize or accept them because they are God's gifts to the church. God says, I'm going to take this pastor and I'm going to plant him in here. And that's a gift to the body of believers in that local church. And they have spiritual authority from the Lord and we should accept them in the Lord. Why? Because it's the Lord that planted them in that church. That's the key. That's why a lot of times I, get, I hear people call me and they'll say, well, Pastor Corey, you don't know me, but we're looking and we have a committee and we're trying to figure out who to select for the pastor of this church. And we've gone through the committees and resumes. And I, I, again, that's all foreign to me from, this, from a scriptural perspective. You know, pray and ask God to, uh, to bring someone and then it'll be confirmed by the reading of the word of God. The word will confirm who that God is going to be appointing. You, some committee doesn't do it. God does it. Yes, God uses people to ensure and test things, and we will see that as we go through these, the scriptures. But make sure we understand that God is appointing this person, this pastor, in charge or be over, to be over this church to be a spiritual leader or a shepherd of the people. He is not to be a dictator. He is to not to lord over the people, but he is to be a leader, to lead the people spiritually and to, to be examples to the people and how they, that person lives their life according to the, the word of God. And so that is why we're important because as God appoints the pastor there, then the pastor is walking uh, in, 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 uh, according to God's will, then you can look at that person's life and that person just keeps pointing you to Jesus, pointing you to Jesus, not to your, the, the pastors themselves. Look at me. Look at my name. Look at what I've achieved. No, no, he's just constantly pointing you to Jesus because that's who he's pointing toward. He's following Jesus. Come on, follow me. I'm following Jesus. That until you grow up and mature so that you can have a good, solid foundation and can walk. You're not like a little baby Christian just laying there crying and waiting to be fed. No, you can actually walk. You are, you know, then that's what happens. You have to have someone as an example to walk. 
according to God's way. So first of all, accept them. Those who labor among you. That is one of the key qualifications Paul is saying here. It's not, you're not going to, to accept this leader because they have a title. That doesn't give them the, that doesn't, is not what Paul is saying here. It's those who labor among you. Leaders are recognized not by a title, but by their service to the people. People know who that, that, that that's the pastor. I know who the pastor. Why? Because he's, he's, he's everywhere serving the people. It's not, a, a title's fine. Don't, don't go, get me wrong. We see in the scripture, it talks about elders it's, and, and, and pastors. It's not, that's not the question here. But it's, it's, it's about the, uh, does the title of the person that God brought there and the description of what they're supposed to do, the question is, are they doing what God's called them to do to be a pastor in that church? That's the question. Are they doing it? Not just sitting around being a title only, uh, but doing before God and man what he's doing. And when you see someone laboring for the people, then you will not only recognize them, but you will appreciate them. You'll appreciate the, the spiritual leaders of that church. Why? Because there's nothing wrong in honoring faithful servant leaders of God so long as God gets all the glory for what they're doing. Some people say, oh, I'm sorry. I, I said thank you and, 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 and you did a great job. I, I took your, 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 some, your award away from you. No. no, God gets all the glory. There's nothing wrong with that, to encourage those that God has put in the position of leadership of a church. Spiritual leadership is a great responsibility, a difficult daily tasks. It is not a Sunday-only thing. You know that, don't you? It's not just a Wednesday and Sunday. It is a daily 24-7 calling of God to watch over the sheep and be available to the sheep. And it's not easy to serve as a pastor, elder, a deacon, or any other leadership role that God's called you to into within the body to, to serve the people. And the battles and the burdens are very and many and very all the time. You just never know what the spiritual warfare is going to bring. So it's very dangerous when a church family takes their leaders for granted and fails to pray for them or work in unity with them and encourage them in the work they have. They don't have a clue when people come against the, the church uh, leadership. Not only are you look at who labor among you, but are you... They are to be over you in the Lord. Again, a spiritual leader is recognized as being over the congregation in the sense of ruling and providing headship or a shepherd over the sheep. And it describes a very clear here the legitimate order of authority. And when you see God has appointed you over there to help you and to be there available for you, you need to learn not only to recognize them, to appreciate them, but you also need to recognize, Paul says here, to love them. For a pastor is, is to be uh, in a position that's very difficult because you, you're among the people as a pastor, but you're also over them. So you can't just be buddies and we're going to hang out to be buddies because you have in a position of authority to give instruction or correction or warnings. And you're over them in regards to helping them understand. Do you realize you're in sin? <laughs> the scripture says this. It's hard, right? That's fathers, mothers, you're in a position of a leadership in a family. You can't be buddies with your kids. 
You have to, be, especially dads, you're a leader. You're, not even, you're to instruct them and train them up. That is what you're supposed to be doing. Not be buddies with your kids. Yes, the relationships will change in their different stages of their life. But when you're really young, you're to train them up and you're among them. You're in the family. And it's the same thing with the church family. But you need to learn. We need to learn to love those who God has brought into your life to be a spiritual leader uh, that's helping you. And it's hard to keep that balance because you want to love them and you want to be among them and you just be like them. But at the same time, you're in a position of authority that God has put you in and you need to be available to speak truth and love to them directly, even if it may be hard. And then also we see here admonish you. God says, I'm going to put a leaders in the position that you need to, that they're going to admonish you. Leaders are to recognize those in the congregation. I mean, admonishing means to caution, uh, to warn, to reprove or reprimand gently someone's behavior if it goes against the word of God. Happens many of the youth, right? Not youth, but young, young adults. And they come in and you don't know everybody who comes in. And, and you, you get, want to get to know them. But again, God's brought them there for a Sunday. You don't know how many Sundays, right? And you want to get to know them. And all of a sudden you quickly realize the Lord has brought to light that that young couple are acting like they're married, but they're not married. I'm in a position of authority, you know. I am to warn <laughs> and, to, and to, to encourage them to not live in sin if they're living together. They need to understand what God says. And so instruction is given. Let me open up the scriptures. Let me tell you what God says. This is where you, this is what is right and good. This is what you're doing is going against God. So that is bad. So <laughs> I keep it really simple, you know, to get them to be the, the spirit of God to convict their hearts so they go, God sees all things. He knows all things. I need to change my life. God, help me. And then Nick turns to the pastor and says, can you help me? <laughs> I don't know how to change. This is what I've been. I've been a drug addict my whole life. I have no idea how to get out of drugs. I, I've been an alcoholic my whole life. How do I change? I've been a, a, a chronic liar my whole life. How do I change? I've got a lust problem. How do I change? I've got an angry problem. I got, how do I change? And that's why God put a position of authority called pastors to instruct them according to his way, which is always right and good. And so it's not easy. But we know here in the scripture in verse 12, they will admonish you or reprimand or gently warn you. And you, your responsibility is to obey them. That's your responsibility. You're to recognize them. You're to appreciate them. You're to love these leaders, but you're also to obey them. We see in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Do you realize because of God's calling on my life, because of, of any pastor is called, that they're going to be held more responsible for the position and what they do and what they teach and how they treat the people? Not easy to be in the ministry. <laughs> Not easy at all. 
But that's what, that's what we see here. So they're really, and if they're doing what God's called them to do, and they're doing it based on God's, uh, God's word, I cannot tell you not something. That's why I love going from the entire 66 books, teaching you all 66. I don't miss anything. Why? Because I'm held accountable to make sure you know everything I can possibly, God, give me to give to you, to pour into your life from the word of God so that you can then make change. That's it. So no topical teachings. I need you to be fed. I need you to be able to know exactly what I taught, where I taught it, and everything there. And then you, as we see in the scripture, are to go back and test everything I say. Go back to the scriptures. That's why I, I encourage you to take notes. Write the scriptures down. Go back and sit there and ponder on what God has shown you so that you can learn and grow in your relationship with him. Verse 13. Woo, we got to get going. And to esteem them very highly in love. So not only do you love, obey them, but you to esteem them and very highly in love for their work's sake, be at peace among yourselves. Christians, your responsibility is to esteem your leaders, to esteem them not just a little bit, occasionally, maybe, possibly, if I think about it, no, very highly in love. That's your responsibility for us. They should do this for their work's sake. So you don't esteem a pastor or a leader just because of their title. You do it because of their work that they do. That they are actually serving. They don't deserve to be esteemed or respected because of their title or because of their personality. Seems to be a lot of fun up there at the pulpit. No, they're being respected because of their labor on behalf of God's people. They're invested in you. They're invested in you. 1 Timothy 5.17 Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Paul here twice mentions the, the work of ministry and connects it to the respect of servant leaders. That they're supposed to be serving. These are, these, are, these, these are things that they need to understand, that these people are serving and pouring out their lives, giving up a lot of their lives, personal lives, to invest in your life so that for your soul, You'll be right in walking with God. And so when he says, for the work's sakes, if the congregants knew and understood the work being done outwardly that you can see, but also know there's so many things that happen behind the scenes that most people don't even know that takes place. The many times over the years I've had conversations well, you just show up for a couple hours on a Wednesday and a Sunday, you know, or on a Sunday. That's all you do. <laughs> that was funny, you know. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's a funny, uh, funny thought, but, uh, but no. The two o'clock in the morning calls are quite interesting. The calls of having to do funerals are very interesting. The death of a spouse come to the hospital is very interesting. Spiritual warfare 
and the letters you can receive and the accusations and that are baseless that come against you. It's very interesting. But that doesn't hinder a pastor who is sold out to do what God's called him to do. That nothing hinders that leader to continue to do the calling that God has on his life, regardless of how he feels. He keeps showing up regardless of how he feels. Why? Because that's, he wants to be obedient to God's calling of his life. But not only do you highly esteem, very highly esteem and love for those, for the, the work's sake that they're doing, but notice at the, at the end of verse 13, be at peace among yourselves. You want to esteem, do you want to esteem a pastor? Be in, be in unity and love with one another. <laughs> that there's no division among the people. There's no squabbling and arguing and division among the people. You want to esteem a pastor and, and just show love? Be in unity and love with one another. Stop causing division. Stop looking and be critical spirit, looking for the wrong and everybody and everything. People are not perfect. You know that, right? They do make mistakes. Have forgiveness among the people. Long-suffering, kind, gentle. The fruit of the Spirit. Let that reign in your life. And that will esteem a pastor and the leaders of a church more than you know. Because you can just show up and just know it's going to be a loving fellowship and it's just incredible. That's why I, I, I tell people, how's the fellowship? And we have guests, you know, Ted was here, Pastor Ted a couple of times. He says, Corey... The people are so loving there. They're just so, like, in unity and one-minded. They're just, they're just, I'm blessed when someone comes outside of the church and recognizes what we see. It's just people just loving Jesus and loving each other and coming together. And, and everyone has their own challenges and, you know, situations going on and health issues and all kinds of things. But it doesn't stop the love, the fellowship, and, and support for one another. But he says, be at peace among them, uh, of yourselves. Paul is just really simply commanding the Christians should simply put away all of those arguments and all those things that cause disunity that the Satan would love to get in there and the flesh loves to get in there to cause problems. And when you come down to it and you see that happening, and not here, not this, obviously, congregation, of course, not this fellowship, but whenever you find division and dissensions in a local church, it's usually because of selfishness. It's because something, they didn't get what they wanted or how they ever wanted it. Selfishness or sin on the part of the members or the leaders or both. James chapter 4 verses 1 through 3 makes it clear that selfishness on the inside leads to strife on the outside. So people always say, well, what's going on in that family over there? Well, you know there's something going on. Because if you see it on the outside, you know it's already been going and brewing on the inside. We, have, we hear things and we, we squish those kinds of conversations very quickly when you hear, when people come in and say, oh, you pastor, you, I, I, you won't believe what's happened at such and such fellowship. And I say, no, no, I'm just happy you're here today. I just want you to be here. I want to feed you. If you have any questions, we want to pray for you. I, I, let's just pray for the other congregation, the other fellowship, that God would be head of that church and that the, 
the sin or the selfishness that's reigning, it's causing the division and strife within the church will subside and go away so it can be a healthy, healthy church. And that's what happens when the result of a church family who's willing to take responsibility as a Christian in that church and follow the spiritual leaders, it is only as they submit to one another in the Lord that we can enjoy his blessing and peace in the family. But also understand something, that uh, leaders alone cannot do all the work of the ministry. <laughs> do you know? Just a few of us. You can't do all the work of the ministry. It's, it, God has called all of you because he's brought you to the fellowship to do your part what he's called you to help in the ministry. And it can be the most subtlest of things, but so tremendously important uh, to help in the body. But that's one of the key things that Paul is saying here as an essential is, is to, to be part of that fellowship and help. So now let's look at the next one about blameless. Not only are you to be blameless toward how you uh, interact with the pastoral staff of the church, but notice here Paul says they need to be blameless toward people in the church. And he gives them six things here that you as a Christian, how you are to treat or work with people within the body of that local church. And he outlines it very clearly for us in six things we are going to see. Verse 14 says, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all, Verse 15, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. So notice this here, that to exhort, to encourage, to tell someone what they must do, but without a, a sharpness or a critical spirit about it, but for us to learn to be able to speak and exhort or encourage someone to do something out of love. It is, it, it is not rebuke, it's not condemnation, but neither is it a merely a suggestion or a merely a, uh, a, a um, advice that they're giving. So when it happens here is when you're trying to exhort someone, you're trying to be, uh, have an urgency or a seriousness that they need to understand that I want to encourage you and exhort you to do something to change that lines up with the will of God to the, to the word. All church members, as well as church leaders, are responsible to minister to each other. Notice that in the verse here, verse 14. He says, we exhort you, brethren, that means the whole congregation that's listening to the reading of this letter, warn those who are unruly. That's the first group that he highlights here. You have a responsibility, not just me. If you're in fellowship with one another and they're unruly, Unruly means careless or out of order when it comes. It's a military term that we see here, and it describes a soldier who breaks ranks or marches to his own little beat, or his own little step when it comes to and pertains to, to the Word of God. Let me give you an example. Many times, people in the congregation don't come tell me things. They don't come up and tell me, I believe this false doctrine over here of prosperity doctrine. They don't usually come to me. 
They'll come to you in some form or fashion within some time of fellowship before church or after church or sometime during the week, and they slowly kind of get you to see if you believe in that same false teaching that they just listened on the website or just read a book. And now the question is, is what do you do with that? Now, if you're strong in the Lord and you're, you're, you're walking in the Spirit, you are here, as Paul says, you are to exhort or to, in this you are to warn those that are unruly, those who are teaching that goes against the scripture, you are to warn them. Do you realize that's not in the scripture? Can you show me in the scripture where you see that? that, that's a, that you're, you're off on that. Do you realize? I love you, man. But I, can you show me that? Where did you get that? Who are you listening to? Oh, watch out. You're heaping up teachers that sound good, but that's not scriptural. You don't just sit, unless you're not solid, then you turn to a leadership of the church, one of the pastors. That's their role and say, hey, can I, dude, it didn't sound right. Can you come, come with me? Let's go talk to the pastor. No, I don't talk to the pastor. Are you kidding? Okay, let me go find another brother. The two of us will talk to you about it and show you the scripture. That's not, that doesn't line up. But we're to warn those who are unruly. We're to, 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 we're to, to address those things because they become these they can become self-willed persons and they simply demand to hold to hold on to their own opinion or preferences or demands when it comes to uh, to the to word of the word of God or in fellowship and they become unruly and so Paul says no no you got to warn them. He warned them many times. He warned the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians 4.14 because of that problem. He warned the Ephesian uh, leaders in, in Miletus in Acts chapter 20, verse 31. He warned that group because they were becoming unruly and doing things they shouldn't be doing. And it's not easy, is it? To go to a family member, to, to friends, and to, to be able to say, do you realize you're walking away from the truth of God? I have to warn you, I love you, and not to say something to you. Doesn't mean they're going to receive it from you because they may not be teachable. But in due time and with much prayer, the Lord will, will come back. But he also says not only to warn those who are unruly, but you're to comfort the faint-hearted. Comfort the faint-hearted are those who literally, what we refer to in the Greek here is small-souled. Small-souled. It means by nature or experience, they tend to be timid or lack courage in their faith in Jesus Christ. They're very timid. Oh, I, I have a faith, brother, but I don't talk about it. I, I, I keep that all private. I hear that, in that sometimes that way. Or, mm, I don't know, I can feel like I, I don't want to have confrontation and challenge when it comes to who Jesus Christ is. Even though they think he's just a prophet, I don't want to explain that he is God in the flesh, you know. We're to comfort the faint-hearted. Those we need to encourage them and comfort them in a sense to encourage them and to gain strength in their faith of who their relationship is with Jesus Christ. We need to encourage them. Ephesians 6:10 says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, not your own might. You can't do it in your own might. You have to have his might to do it. Colossians 1.11, strengthen with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering and with joy. 
That's how God's going to work in your life to bring the, and, and comfort the faint-hearted and strengthen. Philippians 4.13, I, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So remember, in this key point here, it's, it's, it's that we need to point them to Jesus Christ for this strength. That's how you comfort a faint-hearted brother or sister. The third item that he's, uh, Paul mentions here is that we need to uphold the weak. Weak in their faith. Those who are weak in the faith. Not physical strength, but weak in the faith. And so they need to grow up strong in the Lord. Romans 14 through Romans chapter 15. And we're not to let them fall. If someone is weak in their faith, don't allow them to fall. Don't have an attitude within the, within the body and sit there and say, Brother, I told you before, once before, you need to show up. That's true. But don't let them fall. Go ahead. I, I hear so many times it drives me ooh, a little bit a little quirky on this when I hear, oh, that's how they'll learn. They need to make a lot of mistakes. That's how they learn through their mistakes. Okay, go tell little Johnny, your five-year-old, to go run out in the middle of the street. And once he gets hit, he'll learn not to run out in the street again. That's insane to me to sit there and tell around and say to one of you and say, okay, you're not listening to me? Go ahead. Go out there and have a fling and go into the drugs and alcohol. And when you've destroyed your life and everyone around you, then maybe you'll learn you'll come back. What kind of pastor would I be if I said that to you? What would you be as a brother or sister by saying that to a brother and sister in the Lord when you see that they're weak in their faith and are about to fall back into the sins of the life? How could you sit there and say, well, that's their problem, not my life? We cannot be that way, my brothers and sisters. We must hold up someone who's weak in the faith. Encourage them. Come alongside these new believers. Come under them and hold them up until they're strengthened and walking in the Lord and they're strong enough to, to continue to move forward. The fourth thing is, he says, be patient with all. That means long-suffering. Endure with all people. You know, it's not always easy to be around people. You have challenges within your own family getting and staying around your family. I mean, COVID has put a lot of families upside down. Because families could divide in, in first thing in the morning. Hi, love you, bye. Go, and, and you go out and you're gone 10, 15 hours and you come back in just enough time to say, okay, I'm ready to eat and let everyone go to bed. And you don't have to communicate and deal with family. COVID changed that, did it not? Because you couldn't go anywhere. You had to deal with the root issues that are going on. And you need to learn to be patient with all. It takes patience to raise a family. And though there's different approaches... Uh, how to deal with different people because people are different. Christians must be patient with all. With all. Yes, all. Believers, non-believers, all. We're supposed to be patient with all. And this is because true Christianity is shown by its ability to love and heap and to, and to not only love those who are easy to love, but th love those who are very difficult to love. That's really Christianity in regards to how you live your life. And we don't look for only perfect people to minister to or to minister alongside. You're, you're there to minister to whoever God is bringing in by your side. 
and you are to work with them in love. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slacking concerning his promise. So some count slackness, but it is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Any time in our mindset is like, wow, that guy's really lost. The guy's so far gone, there's no help for him. You need to repent. <laughs> God saved you. <laughs> And if you think you had no big deal, then that's pride. So you really are in trouble. <laughs> so, you know, God has not given up on them. Why would, you, why would you give up on anybody trying to read them to a point where they will repent for Christ? And also see in number five, this, this, the fifth thing he mentions here, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. A Christian should never, never should seek revenge and vengeance. Never. But let God take up our side. We need to watch our motive in regards to how we deal with people who come against us. Let God deal with it. God will do a much better job than you will. <laughs> You'll probably screw it up even worse. So just let God deal with it. So let never let evil for evil to anyone. Often as we minister to others, they reject us. As pastors, you try to minister and people reject me and reject and reject pastors all the time because they don't want to hear the truth. They want to continue to live the way they want to live, however they want to live. And these are people who said they've been Christians, let alone non-believers. But you get rejected and even opposed against. And many times they'll show no appreciation whatsoever for the fact that you're trying to help them. But we continue to always serve, to serve in love and be ready to forgive, to forgive, and to forgive. We must. We never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Over, overcome evil with good, Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21 says. We must live peaceably with others in that. That is so important for us as a Christian to be blameless when it comes to interacting with other people. We must always hear, and the sixth point he made here, is we must always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. So when we have a forgiving heart toward others, not holding things against another in bitterness because they said something wrong or they didn't do what you wanted them to do and you allow bitterness to, to mull in your head and you don't address it with the Lord of how you're thinking and feeling about that person, you're going down a slippery slide. You must not allow that. You must pursue what is good for both yourself and for all. And we must make sure we forgive, have a forgiving heart. And not only is it good for them, but it's also good for ourselves not to have bitterness take root in our lives. We must always remember relationships must be kept in unity and love. Because the enemy would love division and not love. We see it in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 and 24. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. God, God has made it very clear. <laughs> you know you did something against someone else? 
And you think you can just freely come in and start worshiping God without addressing the issue? It's, the scripture's clear. You've done something against someone else, go make it right if you can. If it's ability, if you have the ability to do that. Make it right with God, repent, and then make it right with that person, and then come and you'll be able to freely worship God because you won't have something over you. The third area that we see here in the scripture here about being blameless is blameless toward God who started the church. Blameless toward God. We need to be blameless toward the pastoral staff, the church leadership, spiritual leadership. We're to be blameless when it comes to, to our fellowship and our time with other people in the church, local church. But we see here Paul says we need to be blameless toward God. And he says here in verse 16, rejoice always. Rejoice always. We're going to see seven things that he says here in regards to this blameless toward God. He says we need to rejoice always. Not only rejoicing in happy things, but also in sorrowful things. A Christian can rejoice always because their joy isn't based on their circumstances. But in the Lord, their joy is because of their relationship with God and that he has you in his hand regardless of the circumstances you're facing. Circumstances change all the time, but God does not change. So if you're on a roller coaster of emotions of, of, of where you're internally, where you are in regards to how you're thinking, it's probably you're not stable because you're not basing this, this, this rejoicing, this, this joy in your life because of what God has done for you and it continues to do in you. You base it upon circumstances. Joy takes the burden off, uh, burden out of service. You can serve, and the the rejoicing or joy takes the burden out of that service. That's why it's beautiful because you can just just literally serve the Lord, and He gives you the strength and ability and a joy to continue even if it's very very difficult work to be done. We see in Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is your strength. God, God loves a cheerful servant as well as a cheerful giver. Joy in our hearts is not dependent on our circumstances. And here's a key point I want you to understand the difference between joy and happiness. Happiness is based on happenstance is where we get the word from. Your happiness is based on your happenstance. What is happening right now? The circumstances, if the circumstances in your life are good, I am up. I'm happy. If the circumstances in my life is bad, then I'm bad. We have it very clear up here in the North Country. When the winter comes, people are not happy. When, when it gets spring comes, everyone seems to be Really happy. Why? Because it's based on weather. Happiness and joy are two different things. You may not be happy that we have snow, which we don't. We have summer right now. Some of you are not happy because we have summer and you want fall. It's, it's, it's a funny thing how we are. And we get fall, we're talking about winter. When we're winter, we're already talking about spring. It's just... It's, be content in all things that God's the word says. Just, it, would, it would really help you on your happy mode, uh, happy 
motor, what's it called there? M monitor, meter. But joy, true joy, is based on our relationship in the person of Jesus Christ. There are times where you'll come across Christians, and I hope you're not any of them, I don't think so, but you may know some who are deeply spiritual Christian people who have been following and studying the word every day like no one else. But their view of religion that they're caught up in is they think it's sacred to walk around gloomy. You ever been to a church where you walk in, it's really quiet, there's no smiling, there's no joy, there's no, there's no laughter, there's no, they're just, they're just, mm, mm, you know, you just walk in and you walk back out and you're like, what happened here? It shouldn't be. Paul didn't say groan in the Lord always, again I say groan. He didn't say that. But sometimes people think that's more spiritual if you're gloomy. No, we should have a joy that just pours out of our life because of what God has done and the relationship you have with him. And if you noticed, if you did, you, did you notice in your note-taking that Paul highlights four spiritual characteristics here in this from the fruit of the Spirit? that we see from Galatians 5.22. The first one was love in verse 13. Peace in verse 13. Long-suffering, verse 14. And joy in verse 16. And we have to understand that we cannot manufacture these spiritual qualities in our life. They can only come if we yield our life to the Spirit of God and permit Him to control us and change us. That's the only way fruit can be bared from your life. Verse 17, we see pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Christians are to pray continually. We can't bow our heads all the time continuously. No, you can't. You can't close your eyes continuously. You have a lot of problems. You will go nowhere. You, will have, you can't constantly fold your hands and you'll get nothing done. That's not what it's talking about. Those things of closing your, bowing your heads and closing your eyes and folding your hands, those are customs of prayer. Those are just customs. Those things are trying to get some kids to slow down and have a little self-control. Hold on to your hands. Close your eyes so you're not distracted. Bow your head so you don't see anything. Those are customs in prayer. That's not prayer. Prayer is commune, communication or communing with God, and we can live each and every minute of the day in constant flowing or constantly recurring prayer. That is what that means. Pray without ceasing is there's a constancy, a consistent flowing of you talking to God about everything and anything throughout your day, each and every day. That's what it means to pray without ceasing. And there's a tremendous importance and value in the time where we shut out, yes, all of the distractions and the focus on God in a time of what we call or refer to in Matthew 6, 6, of closet prayer. Where you go in and close your door and then no one sees you praying. It's just you and the Lord. Absolutely and critical and important. 
But Paul says it should go beyond that, that, beyond that, just that room. And sometimes people get into such religiosity that they only pray at this time, at this way, facing just the east. All kinds of things you will hear because that's what they do. But they're in the middle of a crisis of a car accident and they don't pray. Hello? I'm not in my prayer closet, and I don't have my little prayer shawl, and I don't have a, all kinds of things that people get wrapped up in religion. Paul is saying to you and to I, the Holy Spirit is saying to you, you are to pray without ceasing wherever you are, and regardless of what you're doing. A continuous flow of communication with God. Which is important because as you're teaching your children or you're teaching someone who's a brand new Christian about prayer, make sure they understand that the use of the voice is not essential element in prayer. You don't have to speak out loud to be prayer. It can be just in your mind. The posture of prayer is not a primary importance. You mean you weren't on your knees when you prayed? Hello? How do I do that when I'm driving my car and someone's about to hit me? But people get wrapped up into those things. The place of prayer is not of great importance. And the particular time of prayer is not important. It's without ceasing. It's 24-7. If the Lord wakes you up at 2 in the morning, he has something for you to hear. Spend some time talking to him and allow him to speak into your life. Christians should never be in a place where we could not pray. We should never be in a position or place where you say, ooh, I better not be talking to God right now while I'm in the middle of this sin. You should not ever be in a position where you cannot pray. Verse 18. He also says, in everything give thanks. We see the third thing here, in everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We don't give thanks for everything. We give thanks in everything. Do you know the difference? You cannot give thanks for everything. Someone just stole your brand new car. I assure you, you're not going to give thanks for someone stealing that brand new car of yours. But in every situation, even the stealing of your car, you can give thanks because God is in control. That's his car. He gave you that car. He clearly knows someone just took your car. And that he is going to use this somehow, some way. And it's going to be good for those who love him. It's going to turn the bad situation into good. So we can pray and give thanks in everything. We recognize God's sovereign hand is in charge of our life. We're, we don't live a life that is by fate or chance. God is in control, and as a child of God, you must understand that God is in everything and is filtering everything through his loving hands because you're in his loving hand. And you can have that assurance of the fact that, even though you may not feel like it, the situation's terrible. So how can we give thanks in everything all the time? Only by the grace of God. Only by the grace of God. Remember, giving thanks is also a very vital element of worship. Are you a worship of God? Yes. Do you give thanks in everything? Not, not 
too much of a thankful person unless it's really, really good, you know. Well, you need to learn and grow and mature in that part of your worship uh, element of worship. See, because we use psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, Ephesians 5.19, to express our love and gratitude to the Lord. And if you're not there yet in your walk, I want to encourage you, my brother and sister. If you can't open up and, and sing a, 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 a song to, of truth to God in your relationship with him, that just keep, keep showing up. Keep showing up in regards. Keep, keep asking, God, I want, to, I want to have a song in my heart for you. I want to worship you through my day, even difficult times. I want to have a new song. And as we grow in our application of the Word of God, if you keep showing up and learning and reading the Word of God, eventually what's going to happen is you are going to grow in your relationship with Him and it will be expressed in worship. You can't help but worship Him and sing to Him. And as a local church, as a local church is growing in grace, the church family will want to learn new songs in order to give praise to God. And we see that and highlight a little bit in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. So we give thanks in everything. Why? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We get to do that. It's his will. You always ask, well, what is God's will? His will is for you to worship him freely. Give thanks in everything. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So after each one of these exhortations, these encouragements that Paul is giving, he says, even after rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, and everything give thanks, we are told to do this because it is the will of God. I, I don't know about you, but I want to be in the will of God. I don't want to lose focus on the will of God. I want to please my God. And remember, it, this is not religion. It's a relationship. This is not about this is God's will and you must do it. No, it's not. It's, 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 it's different than that. It's, this is God's will so you can do it. I desire to do these things because I love him. Because he first loved me. And out of love, I want to worship my God. Not because I have to, because it's the religious thing to do. And I understand it isn't easy to, to rejoice always. It's not easy to pray without ceasing. It's not easy in everything give thanks. I understand that. But we can do it because it is God's will. Because it's God's will. Verse 19, Paul continues here and he exhorts them uh, regarding their public worship. And he says there, do not quench the spirit. Do not quench the spirit. We can quench the fire of the spirit that's working in and through your life or in a church, local church, by having doubt. 
Doubt can quench the spirit of God working in your life. Doubt or indifference or an attitude or a rejection of him or by the distraction of others. When people start to draw attention to themselves, it will surely quench the spirit of God moving amongst the church body. John 16, 8. The spirit that says he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Acts 1.8. But you shall receive power from the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We do not want to quench the spirit. Guys, one of the things you need to learn as a husband it's not easy. But when you argue with your wife, if it's not settled in a godly way, you're quenching the spirit. God says he will not hear your prayers. You need to make it right and keep right with your relationship with your wife. Don't go to bed angry. It has to be settled so that you, God will hear your prayers. So many times I can see God looking going, Corey, are you kidding me? You just asked me that question after you just had that little intense fellowship with your wife? <laughs> are you kidding me? I know you're desperately on your knees talking about what you're going to do next with the church and this and this and you have your busy stuff. But <laughs> man, you could get this right first in your home. And then well, let's talk about the other things that you're, I've called you to do. Do you think that would not help a few families if they understood this, this truth? Men, don't you not think if we can get this right by the Holy Spirit that our, our marriages would change? Our children would be trained up appropriately to how to be a good husband and a loving and cooperative wife? Yes, we know this to be true because it's a scripture. We don't want to quench the spirit. We want the Holy Spirit to move in a mighty way, not only, only in our life, but in this congregation. Because when the power of God is moving, a revival in the hearts of people will take place. And that means when the changes of heart, then it goes out into the community and it will change a community. This nation needs a revival. And it starts with our hearts. And then God then uses us to go out and reach the lost. That's how it works. And then we'll be able to go into Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, whatever that means here, from, from Watertown into Carthage, into Plattsburgh, into Canada, down, you know, wherever that may be. It outreaches all the way over to overseas. In verse 20, do not despise prophecy. We see two things here that I need to make sure you highlight. What does it mean to despise prophecy? Foretelling, we see in the Old Testament prophets foretell the word of God. They would say something that, like, thus say the word of the Lord. And when you read that in the scriptures, God is putting on the prophet's heart and mind to speak 
forth God's word. And when they did that, then the scribes would write that down. It would be canonized in the scriptures. And today we have a complete revelation of the word of God we call the Bible. And there is no need for prophets of this day. We don't add or delete today from the scriptures. They are sealed and they are complete. Period. The apostles and prophets help lay the foundation of the church. We see that in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20. But today, after they've been sealed, we've got the complete revelation of God. We have the word of God, the Bible. Today, they don't foretell, I mean uh, foretell, they forthtelling. Which means today, God uses people to speak forth the existing word of God. They just put forth the word of God. They open up their Bibles and they foretell what God has. The only prophetic ministry we have today now is we have is in the preaching and the teaching of the word of God. And that's it. There's no more apostles and no more prophets of the old day. We have God, the spirit of God, working through a person using his word to speak truth. And we recognize that God speaks to and through his people today, and we learn to be open to his voice. But of course, as we will see in the next, in verse 21, we must always test prophecies following the commandment of that. We must test all prophecies or test all things, but do not despise prophecies or do not despise the hearing of the word of God. Let me give you a practical example and we'll move on here. But many times you're as a Christian, you're sitting there and all of a sudden God is using someone to, to share something, the word of God, because you said, hey, I'm having some difficulties in my marriage or I'm having difficulties in my, my work environment or difficulties somewhere in, someone in the church. And someone says, well, let me encourage you. Let me tell you what the word of God says because you're a little off on this and here's what the word of God says. And they go, I don't want to hear that. Don't despise the prophecies. Don't despise the word of God that God is using to share with you, to correct you in, that, in, in your order. But that happens many times. I don't want to hear the word of God because that means I have to be accountable and change according to the word of God. So it's very important we do not despise prophecies, Paul says here. In verse 21, test all things. And hold fast to what is good. See, evil and deception can show its ugly self even in a spiritual setting. Did you know that? So it's very important that Christians, you and I, test all things that are said. If it's not only from me teaching, but also in your conversations with one-on-one -on -one with someone before or after a, a fellowship. You're not to have a critical spirit about everything they say. And that, you can go on that far to the pendulum. It's like every word they say, you're looking for something to get them. I'm get you. I'm going to get you. And you're sitting there, you can't, even, you can't even listen to what the Spirit of God is saying through the Word of God because you're constantly, critically, spiritually looking for every word you say to twist it and use it to justify your feelings and your bitterness you have toward that person. Be very, very, very careful. 
if you're listening and you want to learn and grow in your relationship with God, then we still need to test all things because we want to make sure that we hold fast to what is good. What is good? Paul, in his time, between seeing the Thessalonians and writing this, his very first letter here, he had spent some time in Berea. We see that in Acts 17, verses 10 through 12. And Christians, he noted there in Berea that they were so diligent to study the scriptures and to test all things of what they was, he was saying toward what was written and what was truth and what was taught. And he was, Paul was like just encouraged by that, by the fact that they are Bereans and they were just making sure that they were holding on to what is good. Because you're going to have a choice in the time you spend with people to hold on to what is good that's from the, uh, from the word of God or you will end up getting uh, get clipped a little bit on verse 22. You'll get pulled into evil. And that's why Paul says abstain from every form of evil. You must, I think that's probably one of the biggest things when I, someone comes and says, I don't know how to get out of, this is a really bad situation. I say, what kind of things you would classify as evil that you've allowed in your life? What do you mean? Tell me what you do. What, what, what do you watch? What do you, what do you, what do you, what do you what, the phone's always attached to you. You're always going through it. What, what, what are you allowing that is a form of evilness coming that goes contrary to the word of God? And I'll tell you why you're in the position why you're in. Because you're watching things that go against the word of God. You're listening to things that go against the word of God. You're reading things that goes against the word of God. You're around people who really don't want to live a godly life. And you wonder why you're having things happen in your life. That's why Paul says, abstain from every form of evil. Because when you test it, and you're looking into it and balance that off of what the word of God says. And he says that is evil. That it goes against me. It goes against my nature. It goes against my character. You are to abstain from it. Period. 1 Corinthians 6.12 All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Because if you allow evil in your life... The he or that thing or whatever it may be, Satan is at work and has power over you and you don't even know it. I hear statements like, Pastor, I don't know what happened. Yeah, I know what happened. Let me explain it to you by, from the word of God. 1 Corinthians 8, 9. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. Not only do you abstain from evilness because it can hurt your life, but understand some things you choose to have the liberty to do can cause someone else to stumble in their faith. How much more selfish can you be when you say, I don't care, it's their problem. Grow up, get mature, you know. It's your problem, not mine. I have the liberty to do these things. Selfishness. And that's why we have to abstain from every form of evil. And this is where he brings conclusion here. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Sanctify you completely. 
And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. And we see here, Paul says, God of peace, he's the Prince of Peace himself, will sanctify you completely. Remember, sanctification means to set apart for God's exclusive use of your life. When you, get, when you become born again, we have what we call a positional sanctification. We see that in Hebrews 10.10. You're justified, just like you've never sinned before. Once you've given your life over and the Holy Spirit comes into you, you're cleansed for all your sins. You've been justified. You have a positional sanctification, which means you have once and for all been set apart for God as a child of God, and you're justified for eternity. After you're justified, then comes the what from goes from a positional sanctification into a practical sanctification. We see that in 2 Corinthians 7 1, and that's called sanctification. You're going to be sanctified, which means daily God is working in your life and working out your sins and working out those things and blemishes and things that you're still kind of hindering there, and a growth in holiness will come about in your life. That's the sanctification process from once you get born again until you go home to be with the Lord. There's a sanctification or maturity or discipleship journey that you're on. And then you have the perfect sanctification in 1 John 3, 2. And that all of this accumulates into this perfect sanctification when we see Christ in person and become eternally like him. That is what we call our glorification state. You're justified when you're born again. You're in the process of sanctification now as a believer and you'll become into your glorified state and those are all of a sanctification process that God takes you and I through. But remember, the motivation and the reason why Paul was writing this letter is because he says, get your life right, man. Follow me. You've got to make change because I'm coming back. I'm coming back for you. Let me find you faithful in following me. Let me find you wanting and the greatest motivation is expecting Jesus Christ to come back for us at any moment to live a, a holy life. And may your whole spirit Soul and body be preserved blameless, he says here. It's a, it's a, a, a in the scripture, many bring on this or adopt this uh, view of called a trichonomist view of man, that we're made up of spirit, soul, and body. And I believe that personally. That I believe is, and I've taught that many times. And yes, I can see in the scripture in Mark 12, 30, where he divides man's nature into four parts, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I can see in 1 Corinthians 7, 34, where it's divided just and talks about the body and the spirit. And you can see other places. But I believe the three primary is, the, is what Paul speaks of as spirit, soul, and body. And all of those, and when you read in context of the scripture where you read those throughout the scripture you'll see its context why they're only talking one or the other or two or three of them versus um, just the three as Paul does here but the point is is that God expects you and I because he's the way he's designed this God designs this us as a human to live after the order of the spirit that God gave you when you're born again then the soul, then the body. 
And you've heard me teach it many times. Let the spirit be on top that rules your, your mind, your emotions, and your feelings. That's your soul. And that will then dictate what your body will do. Prior to getting born again, your body was in control. Then your soul. And then you didn't have a spirit because you weren't born again. So all you have to do is be born again and allow God to always walk in the spirit and truth and allow him to control your emotions and your minds and stuff. And it will cause you not to do things with your body. You will have self-control over all your members. There's a solution, my brother. It's a solution, my sister, if you do it God's way and understand how he sees it. Verse 25, brethren, pray for us. I love, here's an incredible Godly man that God has brought about here in Paul, doing incredible things for God. But he's sitting here talking to a brand new church, brand new believers, and he says what to them? Pray for us. He's humble to know that he and those he was traveling with him needed their prayers. He coveted them because in Christian fellowship, there's constant corporate worship. This is where we do. We come together corporately and we worship together. Then we follow, Then following that we get together as saints, as brothers and sisters, and we greet one another and we encourage one another and edify one another and we, and we come together and to do that. And fellowship is part of the worship time. Coming in and singing is worship. Studying the word of God is worship. Fellowship afterwards is still worship time. I want to encourage you, don't run out. Many of us do not run out. I, it's one of the things we're blessed about. There's, we have tremendous fellowship afterwards, and I can't wait to go to the new place. The foyer is huge. Did I say huge? It's like a commercial or something, right? It's huge. It's huge. I mean, it's, it's not going to be a problem. No more tearing down the sanctuary to put the tables in to have a meal. We'll have a, be able to have a feast. And we have a kitchen to make that feast. But afterwards, you can spend time just sitting and have a cup of coffee or tea and just fellowship with one another and encourage each other in their life according to the ways of God. Not only did he ask for prayer, he says, 26, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Now, COVID. <laughs> can I tell you? COVID stops that. Even shaking of the hands, there's a hesitation. It should not be. But Paul says, I wish I could be there to give you a holy kiss, but can you do that for me? I can't be there. That's why I'm writing this letter. I want you to know that I love you. And then verse 27, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle, this letter be read to all the holy brethren. Now it's interesting because Paul and nowhere else in his other letters says this, but he makes a very strong phrase here. Uh, I charge you, I command you by the Lord. It's in the Lord's authority that you read this letter, this epistle to all of those who are believers. Why? Because I believe, and I believe many others at the same time, believe this is his first letter that he wrote. So it's, he's just established. It wasn't a practice that was happening in the church at that time. So he was telling him, I'm writing this letter for not just one person. It's to read to the whole congregation for them to learn and understand what God is showing me. And so this first letter had to be encouraged to be able to do that. And he needed to, I couldn't be there, but this letter substitutes for me not being there personally. 
I want you to clearly hear it. I do not want you to have the issue where I tell one person who tells another person who tells another person, and by the time you get through the entire congregation, it's completely different. Just read the letter to everyone all at one time so they can hear it. And then finally, he closes, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. How more appropriate can it be to start and end a letter in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Why? Because it is about his grace. The reason why we're believers is because of his grace. Because we have fellowship as a local church is because of his grace. Because we can live his way is because of his grace. It's the way of grace. Amen? Let it be so.